I don't know whether you are aware, but New Zealand is one of the only completely snake-free countries in the world. Actually, it is a, I, that's not completely true. We do have these snakes. Um, and there are a couple of um, ocean-going sea snakes that come into the waters of New Zealand as well. But there are no land snakes anywhere, not even in the zoos. You just cannot take a snake into New Zealand. Um, it's just against the law. So I was pretty excited to come to Australia. We came to um, Sydney uh, for our wedding, uh, for our, our um, honeymoon, and um, got to see a snake for the very first time at Taronga Zoo. It was exciting. And then we, when we moved to Melbourne um, more, more recently, and um, oh, 20 odd years ago, and um, got to go to Hillsville, I think it was, and I got to hold a snake for the very first time. I don't think Glenda was that excited about that, but for me to actually hold a snake was, was pretty amazing. Uh, a family at Moorabark that we, we knew had, um, that they had a breeding pair of non-venomous snakes. And we were there one day and I got to hold one of these little baby snakes for know, half an hour or so and just had it crawling around my arm and through my fingers. That um, was quite unusual and strange. It may not be something, you, you probably hate that whole idea, so I'm sorry for giving fear in your mind as I talk about that, or what I'm about to talk about. This is a, um, a, a reticulated, uh, re, reticulated? Yeah, reticulated snake. It's the largest snake uh, in the world. Um, I think it can grow to about 10 metres long. Um, they're native to Indonesia and the Philippines. Melbourne Zoo, I think, has one, if you're really keen to go and have a look at one. Um, like all pythons, they're non-venomous. But what they have instead of venom are these rows of teeth that are shaped backwards. And they grab hold of their victim, and their teeth are like two forks going into the flesh of the victim. Sorry, we'll get through this pretty quick. Uh, <laughs> um, so the python grabs hold and then wraps itself around its victim and then squeezes. Um, it constricts their victim, not by crushing them, but by suffocating them. So every time the victim breathes, and a, man, a farmer in Indonesia was a victim of one of these a couple of years ago, every time the victim breathes, their chest go in and the snakes tighten and tighten until they actually suffocate or have a heart attack. Not very pleasant creatures to think about. Satan is first revealed in the Bible and scripture as a snake in Genesis chapter 3. And there in the, in the creation story, we see him using the tactics of a snake. The same tactics that he uses here in the story in Joshua chapter 7. So often we read the story of Achan and uh, we think it's a story about a man and his terrible sin. And it is, it is a story about that. But it, it's so much more than that. This is a story about the attacks of Satan. How Satan comes as a snake and grips hold of uh, his, the people of God with, his, with these teeth and then wraps himself around trying to crush the life out of God's people. Last week, as um, Jenny alluded to, we, um, we read about how God had this, gave the people of Israel this amazing victory over Jericho, how the walls of Jericho came down with even, without even a, 
a, a, a battle um, as the people marched around and did what they, God had commanded them to do. And God told the Israelites that this city was to be completely devoted to him. They were to destroy all the evil things in the city, what was going on in the city that was so um, corrupted and so evil to God, but to keep the good things for him. And that meant for the people that they got absolutely nothing. Because God wanted to teach the people a lesson. As they established themselves in this new land, this promised land that God had given to them, he wanted them to find their complete fulfilment, their complete satisfaction in him, entirely in him. So God was teaching them to depend entirely on him, that he was enough. So everything else had to be destroyed except the gold, the silver, the bronze and the iron. God says to his people, in verse 18, as, as Jenny read, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. God was giving them this warning before the battle. God knew exactly how Satan was going to attack, how Satan attacks his people, how people's hearts are so tempted by what Satan puts in in front of them. And so in advance, he warned his people, don't touch the devoted things. Don't go anywhere near them or you'll bring destruction not only on yourself but also on the entire camp. An individual sin would have national consequences. God's coming down hard on sin here, warning the people because he wants their hearts. He wants their devotion. He wants them to be totally devoted to him and not distracted by other things around them. Notice how how Joshua chapter 7 or I'll just skip that. Sorry, I'll have to. Not sure where that came from. That was that one. Sorry, Joshua um, chapter seven begins. It begins with the word "but." Now, as soon as you think "but," you think, "Well, what happened before? What, why is this word? What's changing?" Well, in chapter six, we see this great victory. The, you know, the J- battle of Jericho. The city just falls before the people. God gives it into their hands. All looks rosy and good as the people think, well, we're going to march forward now. God is with us. God's going to go ahead of us. Victory is ours as we take these these cities. But verse 1 shows that not all is good in the camp of Israel. But, but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. They were unfaithful. How? How were they unfaithful? And we see how this unfolds because of a man named Achan. Because of Achan's unfaithfulness. Because of idolatry. Often when we think about idolatry, we think of these sort of things. Physical statues or things that man has made. And you see these everywhere when you visit places like Thailand. But in terms of the Bible, an idol can be anything. An idol is anything 
you worship over and above God. Anything that you love more than God. Anything that matters more to you and more to your life than God does. An idol can be anything. We live in a world of idolatry, don't we? All around us we, people, we see people who, who live for their careers, who live for sports, for things that give them pleasure, that give them satisfaction, that things that give them notoriety or give them fame. But idolatry isn't just an issue out there. Idolatry can happen here as well. Idolatry can happen amongst the people of God. And the idols that, that we're tempted with, are tempted by, are the same idols that our neighbours, our work colleagues, our, our friends, our, our schoolmates follow as well. We're tempted by what they're tempted by. But the only difference is that here we tend to hide them. We hide our idols. We say we want to be the people of God and, and we do, we want to follow God. That's, that's our desire. But we also want what the world has. That's Achan. Achan wanted to be part of the people of God. But he also wanted a little bit of what Jericho had. And ultimately the things of Jericho mattered more to to Achan than God did. He was tempted by what he saw and he gave in to the temptation. Do you know why? Why did he do that? He knew the consequences. Why did he take what he saw? Because he thought he could get away with it. He thought he could do it without anybody noticing. And here's where it gets into it. This is what Achan forgot or didn't understand and what we often forget. It's that God knows everything. God always knows. God knows even when it's in secret. The writer to the Hebrews says in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, even our deepest, darkest secrets, even what's hidden, our idols that are hidden, our hidden sins. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of God for whom we must give it an account. So the question I want to put to you this morning is what's hidden in your tent? What's hidden under your tent? What are the idols that you're following? Those idols that Satan tempts you with, dangles before you, things that will draw you away from God. Those strongholds that we talked about last week, those walls that had to come down. What is it that you're looking to for your ultimate fulfilment and satisfaction and meaning? I don't know what that is for you. You don't know what it is for me. But God knows. God knows if we're more devoted to something else than we are to him. Because we're so, we're so tempted by what the world offers We say we are the people of God, but in our hearts we often want something else. We want what the world has to offer. We want this stuff. 
And if we can't let it go, or if we don't want to let it go, that for us is an idol. And God knows. Now you might be thinking as I'm speaking and looking at the screen, you might be thinking of some things in your life right now, maybe some of these things. And you're thinking, well, that's not really an idol. Um, yes, it's, it's something that I enjoy, but it hasn't got control of me. There's nothing wrong with it. Or maybe you're thinking it's not really that bad. The world says it's okay. It doesn't really interfere with my relationship with God. But the problem is that we so often underestimate the power of an idol. We underestimate the damage that it can do. And we treat idols like the one of those little snakes that I was able to hold at our friend's house. It might, it's not going to kill me. The bite might latch onto me, but it's not going to kill me. But this is the thing. The python's bite is not meant to kill you. The python's bite is meant to grab hold of you so that it can then wrap itself around you and squeeze the life out of you. And once it's got a hold of you, it's pretty hard to get, to get free, to let it go, to get rid of it. And that's the way that idolatry works. So I'm asking you today, I'm encouraging you today to, to reflect on those things in your life that maybe have become or are becoming an idol. Because this passage in Joshua chapter 7 demonstrates that the stakes cannot be higher. Your spiritual life can be in the balance. And you cannot expect to move forth in power and in faith with God if those idols, those secret things are holding on to you. I'm going to focus on just two things from this passage this morning, not the three like we had last week that a good sermon should have, but this week they are alliterated. So um, some will be happy. <laughs> I want to focus on two, on, on two things. The symptoms of idolatry and the solution to idolatry. The symptoms of idols and the solution to idols. Now you can replace this word idol, idolatry, with sin. That's fine. Sin covers a whole range of things. Not, not all sin, I think, is idolatrous. Though many aspects of idolatry um, come out in the sins that we, we're, we're prone to. This passage is clearly about the sin of idolatry. So that's the word I'm going to use. If you want to put sin when I say idolatry, uh, that's fine. So the two symptoms of idolatry that we can identify from this passage in Joshua chapter 7. And the first symptom of idolatry is selfishness. Idolatry is often called um, self-worship because that's ultimately what idols make us do. They make us care more about ourselves, more about what we want than what God wants, more about ourselves than other people. And we tend to fall in love, as we, as we fall in love with an idol, it becomes all about ourselves. What I want, what's good for me, what, what gives me satisfaction. 
We're told in verse 1 that, that God's anger burns against, this, um, this, against Israel because of this thing that's happened in the camp, because of Achan's sin. Achan knew what God had commanded before they even marched towards Jericho on David. He knew that they were to touch nothing, to take nothing out of the city except those things for God. He knew the consequences of breaking that command. But Achan didn't care because he was thinking about himself. He didn't care because he couldn't resist the pull of the idol. The idol was more important to him than his safety and the safety and health of his family and the whole of the nation. And that's what happens when idols take hold of us. They become the centre of our life. They become more important to us than our family, more important than our kids, more important than our friends, more important than our church. They become more important than anyone else because idols make us selfish. We become enslaved by them and they end up harming us and harming those around us. And one of the the big lies that Satan wants to tell us is that no one's going to get hurt by what you do. It's just you. It's fine. But if we are harbouring idols in our life, others are being hurt by that. Someone else is being hurt. And in this passage, that harm is, is, is significant. It's considerable. Here's what happens. Israel has just conquered Jericho. The next logical city for them to take is the city of Ai, about 15 kilometres away, so not far away from where they were. And so Joshua sends two spies. These ones, he's obviously briefed and done better than he did last time because these don't get noticed as they go into the city to check out what's going on like they did with Jericho. They have a look around. They come back with their report and the report is there's only a few people living in the city. We can take it at the blink of an eyelid. It'll be a breeze. Don't send the whole army, just send a few. Interesting when they say all this, where's God in this? It's just a decision they make on their own. So rather than wear the whole army out, they send just 3,000 men. And they come up to the city and they're defeated. The soldiers of Ai chase them out of the gates of the city into the countryside, killing 36 people in the process. 36 people die. Their blood is on Achan's hands. They die because of Achan's idolatry, because of Achan's selfishness. Selfishness is always a symptom of idolatry. And here's the second system. Idolatry alienates us from God. Joshua in verse 6 of chapter 7 knows that something is wrong. Something's gone terribly wrong for his people, for the army. And he and their elders fall on their face before God and they they seek God, that they're angry, that they're frustrated, they're hurt. They, They know that something is wrong but they don't know what it is. They don't yet know about Achan. 
But what they do know is that before, when they were in Jericho, God was with them. God fought the battle for them. God's presence was with them. And now he's not. And you can almost hear the, um, the desperation and, and, and the frustration in Joshua's voice. In verse 7, he says, Why did you bring us across the river? Saying, crying out his heart to God. Why did you bring us here? Did you bring us to destroy us? What can I say, Lord? What can I say? The people around us are going to laugh at us. They're going to hear about us. They're going to come after us because they know that we're weak. They're going to wipe us out. And so he leaves a question with God in verse 9. What will you do, God, for your great name? And the Lord answers him in verse 10. And it's a, the Lord's pretty harsh when he comes back to, to, to Jordan, uh, to, to Joshua. His answer is to say, Joshua, get up. Get off your face. Joshua, the problem is you and the people. The issue is with you Israelites, not me. The people sinned. They've been unfaithful. They didn't do what I command. They took the devoted things. They've been unfaithful. They stole. They lied. And because of that, I'm not with you, Joshua. That's why the army failed. And unless you deal with these idols, unless you remove these idols from your camp, I will not be among you. Pretty harsh words from God. We learn from this passage, this story in Joshua, that we cannot expect to have God's presence, for his presence to be powerful among us when we're harbouring idols. Idolatry, sin, whatever you want to call it, alienates us from God. It affects our relationship with God. The pattern of idolatry is always the same. And at some point, these symptoms will start to show. And it's been that way from the beginning. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, the story, um, the first story of idolatry in the Bible, and we see how this all unfolds. The story of Adam and Eve is actually very similar to this conquest of of the promised land here in the story. Adam and Eve are just establishing themselves in a new land, a new place. God had put them there in the garden. And God's there. They're experiencing God's presence. They're walking with him each evening in the garden. And just like he did with the Israelites, God comes to Adam and Eve and says, all this is yours except this tree. Do not touch this tree. If you steal from what is mine, there'll be enormous consequences. There'll be consequences for you and there'll be consequences for everything else. So Adam and Eve, they knew perfectly what the rules were. One tree out of all that they had was what they couldn't touch. They knew what the rules were. They knew the consequences and yet Satan strikes and tricks them with his temptation. They're sucked in to his trickery. He strikes, he latches on, 
and he wraps himself around them. Adam and Eve become selfish. They want what God wants. Well, they know what God wants, but they, what, what, what they want becomes more important to them than what God wants. And all of a sudden, quickly, they're alienated from God. And if we think the death of 36 people here in this story is bad and tough and terrible, the story of Adam and Eve and what they did is incomparable. Paul tells us in Romans 5:12, through Adam and Eve's sin, through their idolatry, death comes to everyone. Death comes to us all. So what are the symptoms of idolatry? Sorry. Selfishness. Alienation from God. The other question this morning is, what is the solution? If these are the symptoms of idolatry, what is the solution? Well, there are two steps revealed in this passage. And the first step is dealing with idolatry involves confronting and exposing the idolatry. And that's exactly what God does in verse 13. God comes to people and says, go and consecrate yourself. Get yourselves ready. Get ready because these hidden idols in the camp, uh, because of these, I'm going to come and I'm going to seek them out. I'm going to find where the problem is. Now, what a night that must have been. You think of what it must have been like for Achan to go to bed that night hearing God's going to find out what the problem is. God's going to identify what the problem is. God says there's evil in the camp, there's sin in the camp, and I'm going to find it. And Achan knew it's me. He knew right away it's me. He doesn't come forward. He doesn't give up his idols because they wrap themselves around him and his life. But in the morning we see what happens. The tribes come forward. Now the tribes, a clan is chosen. Now the clans, a family is chosen. And out of that family, Achan is exposed. He's the one. He's the one who's sinned. He's the one causing God's presence to leave the nation, the camp. He's the one who's brought shame on the nation, on his family, on the nation, even on God himself. Achan's exposed and Joshua confronts him in verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honour him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan's confronted. He's exposed in front of all the people. And at last he says in verse 20, It's true. I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. Listen to the language that Achan uses. I saw, I coveted, and I took. The three steps of idolatry. I saw, I coveted, and I took. 
That's the road to idolatry that Satan wants to lead us down as well. He tempts us. We see. We covet. I want that. And we give in to that temptation. Now, it may be a good thing or it might maybe a bad thing that takes over our life in small ways to begin with and it just grows and grows and it ends up controlling our lives, controlling our thinking, controlling our very actions. It becomes a stronghold in our life like that, um, that like the walls of Jericho needs to be torn down, taken down, it must be confronted, it must be dealt with. That leads to the second solution for idolatry. Idolatry must be removed. And this is probably the thing that we don't talk about enough, that we, we can't talk about enough, because getting rid of idols in our life is, is, re- is so critical, because God is holy. Because he's holy, he cannot tolerate sin. He's so holy and passionate about his holiness that he cannot entertain sin in our lives. He can't tolerate it. He won't tolerate it. Idolatry or any other sin. And that's what makes this, this passage so confronting and so challenging because Achan and his family, his entire family, all that he has is destroyed. It's a hard part of the story for us to read for us to, con- to contemplate. We don't know why Achan's entire family had to be destroyed, had to be included in his punishment. We do know that in Joshua chapter 6, God says that whoever takes these devoted things, all they have will be destroyed, everything the person owns. So by his action, Achan is really signing his family's death warrant as he takes those things from the rubble of Jericho. But it could be that they knew about these idols. Families in those days lived in one big tent and so it would be very easy for the whole family to know that under this carpet we've got some things that my dad took. We don't know. All we know is that the entire family of Achan is destroyed. The details of this story are horrifying on a purely human level. But this story should also make us sit up and take notice about ourselves. The story should be a a spiritual warning to us as followers of Jesus today. Sin had to be ruthlessly exterminated and dealt with from the camp of Israel. Just as, as the Israelites were establishing themselves in this new land, in this promised land, Just as they're beginning, Satan Satan strikes and he latches on to to crush the people, to to take their eyes off God, to, um, to thwart God's purposes for this nation, his chosen people. And God sees this idolatry, this sin creeping into the camp and he knows, he deals with it swiftly. I've got to deal with this now or it's going to just spread. He's forced to act. And so he cuts it off at its head, at the source. God's making a statement in this story about how serious he is about his holiness 
and how sin cannot be tolerated, which is true of all sin. Romans 6 reminds us that the wage sin pays is always death. The wages of sin is death. Sin destroys. It eats away at us. It destroys our joy. It destroys our relationships with each other. It destroys our relationship with God. And so God has to deal with it. God demands that we deal with it. He can't tolerate it. Achan and all he had, his family, his oxen, his cattle, everything, had to be dealt with, had to die. And so do we. But. But for Jesus. Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sins. He died. So unlike Achan, we wouldn't have to die. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For us, that's how the story of Achan ends. With the sinless son of God nailed to a Roman cross because of our sins. Dying in our place as our Representative as, as, as our substitute so that we might not suffer the destruction that our sins deserved. So that we may not suffer destruction like Achan suffered, but instead might be forgiven, might be restored. Because of our sin, we deserve to be under a pile of stones in the valley of Achor like Achan. Our souls destined to eternal separation from God in the place that scripture calls hell. We, you and I, are no different to Achan. We are Achans. We're all sinners, all guilty of idols, setting up idols in our lives that we worship instead of God, that we bow down to, that we devote ourselves to, instead of devoting ourselves to God. Guilty of robbing God of his glory, of not giving him the devotion that he deserves. We deserve for that judgment. Ultimately, we deserve death. But God. Chapter 7 begins with a but. Victory in Jericho has left the people on a high. But, then chapter 7 happens. Sin enters the camp and has to be dealt with. Now the word but isn't at the end of chapter 7, not in my translation at least. But when we think what Jesus Christ has done for us, what he's done for our sin, there is a but. But God. Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we had the death sentence on us, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the grace of God. This is the grace of God freely given to all, to anybody who turns to him and trusts him. No matter what their sin, no matter what their idols, no matter what idols are hiding in their tent, this is the gospel. This is the good news. We were sinners, all of us. We still are. Death was ours, but Jesus Jesus came. He crushed the head of the snake on the cross. He destroyed Satan's power. He took our place on the cross. He paid the price for our sin. He was willing to die for us, to offer himself a sacrifice for us. And through him, we're forgiven. We're justified. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans 5 verse 1. Death is no longer ours. Instead, we have life. Life with Christ now. Life everlasting with God the Father. But even as redeemed people, even as followers of Jesus, we can so easily fall into sin, can't we? Satan It's still real. His power's gone. His future's sealed up. But he still has power. He still tempts us. We still can get into his grip as he wraps himself around us and seeks to crush us with sin. But our God of grace and forgiveness has also given us his Holy Spirit, his indwelling power to enable us to resist these temptations from Satan, these things that he dangles in front of us to try and take us off track with God. It's a constant battle. I don't know about for you, for me, it's a constant battle. We need to fight. But we don't have to fight on our own. The Holy Spirit is there to help us. He helps guard our hearts and our minds from those things that Satan would want to throw at us. He helps us to confront Satan's attacks with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. To be ruthless against our greed, against our envy, against our selfishness, against our complacency, against our self-indulgence. Just a glance was all it took for Achan. Fighting the battle and suddenly seized the expensive robe, the gold, the silver, the iron, the bronze. A split second was all it took for Achan to be entrapped by that temptation. I want it. I'll take it. I'll hide it. No one will know. And we see the devastation of his sin. Those hidden idols that brought nation to the nation to the people. We have to be constantly on our guard because that's how Satan works in our life too. One glimpse can be all it takes to trip us up. And when we do fall into sin, when we do 
give in to what we are tempted by, when we do come to that realisation that there are hidden sins in our lives, we need to confront them, we need to confess them, we need to repent of them, to get rid of them from our lives. Scripture tells us that when we do that, when we confess our sins to God, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 verse 9. If you're hiding a secret sin today, a secret sin this morning, something that that no one else knows, but it's there eating away at you, pulling at you, controlling you, affecting your relationship with others, your relationship with God. I encourage you, I urge you to confront it today. Come to God, to confess it to God. Come before him and tell him. He already knows, but he wants you to admit it, to to, um, be honest, to confess it. Ask his forgiveness and he will forgive and he'll remove that sin. Jesus paid the price for our sins. He paid the price through his death on the cross. God has buried our sins deep in the ocean. I think Corey Ten Boone it was who had his her picture of, of forgiveness was God throws your sins into a lake and puts a sign up that says, do not fish. God throws them away, just gets rid of them. So let's be done with them. Let's get rid of the things that we're hiding, the sins in our lives. Let's not bury them in our tent. The only solution to idolatry is Christ. You'll always be wanting more, always something more, chasing after something, something that will give satisfaction, something that will be better. until you find satisfaction in Christ. So let's keep our eyes focused on him. Let's saturate our minds with things of him. Let's fill our minds with the the sword of the Spirit, Scripture. Let's fill our minds, our satisfactions in him. Not in idols, not in things, but in him. That we might keep walking with him. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you this morning. We recognise that sometimes your word, in your word you, you, you speak to us in ways that cause us to stop and to reflect and to think what's going on in my life. And, and this passage is one of those. This passage from Joshua, it, it's hard for us to hear a, a terrible story. It's hard for us to hear about sin and judgement and death. And yet we realise, we know that, that, that sin is real. That it's, its consequences are real. Lord, we know that you hate sin. We know that you are passionate for your holiness. You want us to be passionate for your holiness as well. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength by your spirit, uh, that you would equip us to fend off the attacks of Satan, to put to death our, our sinful nature. And to go about this, this messy day-to-day business of cutting sin out of our lives. 
Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people that would not tolerate sin. You know there's so much about us that wants what the world has and yet we know that these things can can lead to death. Pain for us and, and those close to us that they affect our relationship with you. And so Lord, we pray that we would not tolerate sin in our lives, that we would confront the idols in our lives, that we would break them down and crush them and destroy them and remove them from our lives. Lord, help us to be willing to listen to you, to look and to carefully evaluate whether uh, there are things that, that we love more than we love you. Lord, we want to give you more of our hearts. We, we want to give you our lives more and more. We need your power. We need your spirit. We need your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.